Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able, but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? This was the question we began this series on the problem of evil so long ago, last year. This question from the Greek philosopher Epicurus. And it's been the question we've been wrestling with throughout scripture and church history to try to figure out what have been the best answers to this question that people have presented throughout time and history within the Christian tradition. Where we last left off, we were in the 16th, 17th, and heading into the 18th century. And it's important as we look back on this era, as theologians and philosophers continue to wrestle with the problem of evil within the Christian tradition, that we don't underestimate the damage Christians did during this era, the damage they did to propagate evil and suffering in the world. One clear and conclusive reason for the beginning of the long process of secularization and the resulting meaning crisis in the Western world has been the problem of evil and suffering created by those claiming to be Christian. It's not just ideas and words about ideas that reveal what we believe and change the world. It's the, the existential enactment of our deepest values played out in our daily lives that reveal the God or gods we actually worship. And by the 17th and 18th century, many of the inhabitants of Europe and North America were growing tired of the God of Christendom. Well past the Inquisition, the Crusades, Post-Reformation Europe had many horrific incidences of mass suffering induced by people professing to be Christians. In the 17th century, witch trials took place. We talked about this way back in the conclusion of our episode on Molinism. In the 17th century, witch trials took place throughout Europe. It's just one example. And of course, quite famously in Salem, Massachusetts. During that time, there was as many as 100,000 executions, of which 80,000 of them were women. And the worst of these happened in Catholic German lands and in the Calvinist areas of Scotland. So this was a non-denominational act of suffering. Then you had the Wars of Religion in France in the late 16th century, followed by the Thirty Years' War between Catholics and Protestants in Central Europe. No side is immune to this. All of these religious conflicts created a counter-response of cynicism towards Christianity as an institutionalized religion, and this is a response we still feel to this very day. Running oftentimes parallel with these religious conflicts was a scientific revolution that, that was birthed out of this theological affirmation of general revelation and reason being a gift of God to humanity. As behavioral scientist John Verveke observes in his Awakening from the Meaning Crisis lecture series, which I, I recommend Many of these scientific discoveries ended up shattering our prior understandings of the world, and they disoriented people's meaning-making systems. For example, if 
the earth seems like a simple one, but it's a really big deal. If the earth is not the center of the universe, which it appears to be based on my unassisted observation and experience, then what else might I be wrong about? Newton laws of phys- Newton's laws of physics pointed to the universe being run like a machine automated by a designer to run and behave according to law, not by a direct, immediate contact or control by God himself. So this, this revolutionary science and math and this change in consciousness led to the rise of rationalism and natural theology. And in today's episode, we're going to explore what might be the, the peak of natural theology and rationalism during the Enlightenment as it pertains to dealing with the problem of evil in the work of Gottfried Leibniz. Gottfried Leibniz was possibly one of the most brilliant human beings to ever live. He developed calculus, uh, the first mechanical calculator, and it could even be argued that he was the founder of artificial intelligence in the 17th century. Oh, and on top of all that, somehow he found time to write these extremely important and influential works of philosophy and theology. Gosh, it makes me think, what am I doing with my life as I look at the life of this guy? Philosophically, Leibniz was a Christian rationalist who believed that reason is the primary vehicle for discerning truth. And though there are others we could point to as examples of this sort of rationalist philosophy doing the natural theology common in the Enlightenment, Leibniz is probably the best of this era when it comes to trying to seriously address the problem of evil. In fact, as we talked about at the very beginning of this series oh so long ago, it was Leibniz who actually coined the term theodicy. So when he wasn't inventing calculus, the binary numeric coding system, fundamental to computer language, artificial intelligence— He was writing about God, the problem of evil, and some of the deepest questions of life. Though he wrote about the theological and philosophical problem of evil throughout his life, his most important project in this regard was his 1710 work entitled Theodicy, Essays on the Goodness of God, the Freedom of Man, and the Origin of Evil. So if you want to really dive into the theodicy of Gottfried Leibniz, that's the book you want to check out. Uh, We're going to use, uh, obviously, stuff in that book, but I also want to refer you to the work of Charlene P.E. Burns, whose book we've been using throughout this series entitled Christian Understandings of Evil, The Historical Trajectory. So a couple of good resources for you to check out. What about Leibniz's sort of maybe religious upbringing and background. Well, he's a German, so almost like by default at this time, maybe not in true of of everybody, but statistically, you know, it would have been pretty normal for Leibniz to worship in the Lutheran church, which he did. He worshiped in the Lutheran church throughout his life, and he really tried to hold on to some of the classical Lutheran doctrines. But having said that, 
we shouldn't confuse Leibniz for a Lutheran theologian. He, he's distinctly writing his own thing. So if you see, hey, Leibniz went to a Lutheran church, I'm going to dive into his stuff. Oh, maybe Leibniz is laying out for us Lutheran theology, it, you know, maybe in some sense, but Leibniz is his own, his own thing, more a product of the Enlightenment, natural theology and rationalism, and you sprinkle in some Lutheran convictions, that's kind of what you got. Leibniz wrote this work, this important work entitled Theodicy, in 1710 because he was so upset by the case made by a, a guy named Pierre Bale, who is a French Huguenot. And, and Pierre Bale had argued that there just there wasn't there wasn't a rational way to solve the problem of evil without making God responsible for the evils of the world. And Leibniz being this genius that he is, and honestly, like, I don't think he's like just some vain genius. He, he's actually really turning over all of this processing power that God's gifted him with to try to solve the best he can some of the deepest mysteries of the world in all sorts of domains, such as math and, you know, calculus and in philosophy and theology. Leibniz rejected some of the other more controversial opinions. He didn't just reject Pierre Bale's claim that there was, there's no rational way to solve the problem of evil. But he was also really vocal in his rejection of other controversial opinions of his day that had to do with the problem of evil, including the Socinian belief that God's omniscience was limited to just logical or necessary truths about the future but that there were contingent truths that God didn't know because, again, the line of thinking that the Socinians held to, because if God knew these contingent truths with absolute certainty, then free will becomes a logical impossibility. Now, remember that point. We're not going to do a whole episode on the Socinians, but we're going to come back to that eventually in a future episode on open theism. And as a side note for Patreon supporters, I am, I'm going to have either by the time this is out or within the week or two following this, a, uh, a sit down with a, a, a question that I get to pose to Greg Boyd, one of the godfathers of open theism, about some of my questions. So uh, for those that are in the Deep Talks Patreon community, you might want to check that out. But for now, I think the most important thing to note is that Leibniz was against that idea. And what he tried to do was he tried to find a rational way to defend more classical notions of God's omniscience. Leibniz opens up his book Theodicy with this explanation of the relationship between faith and reason, reason and revelation, and, and trying to lay out this defense that works within his Christian tradition, this defense of reason and revelation not being competing streams or at odds with each other. He writes this, quote, I assume that two truths cannot contradict each other that the object of faith is the truth God has revealed in an extraordinary way, and that reason is the linking together of truths, but especially when it is compared with faith, of those whereto the human mind can attain naturally without being aided by the light of faith. 
In order to understand Leibniz's defense of both the goodness of God and his omnipotence, we need to examine some of the philosophical principles that guide his work. One of the most crucial principles that Leibniz held to that we need to understand in order to better understand his work is what we could call the principle of contradiction. The principle of contradiction to Leibniz meant this. If a proposition is true, then a proposition contrary to it cannot be true too. In other words, a proposition can't be true and false at the same time. A claim, say, that George Washington was the first president of the United States, and a claim that Abraham Lincoln was the first president of the United States, both can't be true at the same time because one contradicts the other. If one is true, it's logically impossible for the other to be true as well. So that's the principle of contradiction. The next principle I think that's important, and there's there's several others, but the next principle I think that's important for us to understand Leibn Leibniz's theodicy is the principle we could call the principle of sufficient reason. The principle of sufficient reason works like this. There is no effect without a cause. Everything has to have a cause. This is really important for Leibniz because in theory, if given enough information about the effect, one should be able to, again, in theory, if they have enough information and computational power, should be able to discern the cause that led to that effect. The problem with human reasoning is one of capacity to consume and discern enough information in order to figure out the cause. But everything that has, every effect has to have a cause. Like previous theologians and philosophers, Leibniz deduced that all effects requiring a cause logically, so for all, if all effects logically require a cause, then it also logically entails that there be an absolute necessary fundamental uncaused cause. This cause and effect can't go on forever. Logically, Leibniz is in the tradition of people like uh, Aquinas, who believes that there is a fundamental uncaused cause. This isn't just Leibniz. You could go to Plato as well, um, Plotinus and Neoplatonism. So Leibniz here is very much in, in using the, the principle of sufficient reason is very much within the sort of scholastic tradition that we would have found throughout the medieval period and even going back into antiquity, which would argue that the idea of God or that which we can think no higher than is logically rational. So Leibniz deduces this this affirmation of the existence of God based on logical proofs. This is, this is what makes him a natural theologian and a rationalist. He's not saying that he's come to this conclusion because one day uh, he had a, a, a mystical vision or revelation. He says that the knowledge of the existence of God is deducible 
by reason. And that that keeps him in a long history and tradition of of Christian thought, especially within the scholastic tradition. You know, and this is commonly called the ontological argument. And the ontological argument is really important for Leibniz in his theodicy. Because like many of his theological and philosophical predecessors, Leibniz found it logically logically necessary that in order for the effect of the uncaused causer, so the uncaused causer, which again in Leibniz's mind is the, the Christian God, in order for the effect of that uncaused causer to be different than itself, to be differentiated from itself, it could not be, the effect could not be the perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty that God is. In other words, and we've talked about this before, this could this is a belief held by many Christians throughout church history, God cannot logically create God. The contingent creation, so God is that which is necessary— if God creates another thing that is necessary, it's, it's a logical impossibility. God cannot create God. That which is necessary, what is contingent and derived and, and coming from God and dependent on God cannot be another God itself. This is just impossible. So the contingent creation, the contingent creation that derives its very being from the uncaused causer must be different than the creator. The contingent creation must be different than the creator. It cannot be the perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty. This is impossible because the perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty is God. So this is what this logical necessity to Leibniz. This is important that we get this because this for Leibniz sets up a, the first category of evil, which we could call metaphysical evil. Metaphysical evil, that is to say, or maybe if we prefer to not call it evil, we might say um, metaphysical difference, you know, or maybe metaphysical deficiency, because it's different and deficient in comparison to the perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty, the uncaused causer, which is God. Metaphysically, difference and deficiency is necessary in contingent creation. So we could call the first category of evil for Leibniz metaphysical evil. Any possible creation, any creation that, that, that could have been possible or what Leibniz calls worlds, but again, we can't think of when Leibniz used the, uses the term world that we're talking about uh, you know, a planet, that, that's not what he has in mind. So any possible reality or creation or, to use Leibniz's term, world, any, any possible world created as a distinct entity, distinct from God, will have fundamental, and I use air quotes here, flaws in comparison to God. 
because God is the perfection of truth, goodness, and beauty. God can't create God. So anything in comparison to God will be flawed in some sense. Every possible world, every possible world that could be conceived of has some deficiency in it. Or again, what we might just conceive of or perceive of as deficiency in comparison to God. So Leibniz is fine with causing this deficiency, this some level of absence of the good, of the true, of the beautiful within creation. He's fine with calling this metaphysical evil. Like the Molinists, who again, that was our previous episode way back when. You can go into the archives and check that out, uh, the episode we did, uh, I did on Molinism. Leibniz contended that there could have been a nearly infinite range of possible worlds, but because God is the infinite fount of wisdom, the world that was brought to bear in reality was the best possible world. As a fun side note, and maybe even more than just a fun side note, Leibniz even saw it as a statistical probability that life exists on other planets throughout the universe, right? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, like, novel idea, I suppose, in his time and era, but given the mathematical brilliance he possessed and knowing that there were other planets that existed. I mean, he just saw it as a statistical probability that life of some form does exist on other planets throughout the universe. That didn't threaten his faith. I mean, it doesn't really threaten mine either. We're not going to get ancient aliens here. But the interesting thing about that for Leibniz is he saw that as a statistical probability that when all of that is taken to account— that there is possibly and likely, not just on Earth, but throughout the universe, that there is life and beauty in that life existing on other planets when all of that's taken into account. The natural and moral evils we experience in total, both now and in God's completed trajectory for creation, are so, they're so small in comparison to the weight of goodness, the, the, the evils we experience, if we were even able to see for Leibniz, the, the, the possible vast array of life that exists within the universe, and maybe it doesn't, who knows, but in his mind, if that did, that only heightens his case that this, even the evils, the horrific evils, the natural evils and moral evils, which we'll talk about those two other categories in a moment, even the, the horrific amount of evil that we might experience in, in total is so small if we were to weigh it up against the, the total goodness in creation both now and in God's completed trajectory for creation. The problem then that Leibniz says we have, the problem we experience is in our inability to not see the total picture. We have these brain storage limits. Our hard drives are limited. The 
processing and computational power of our brain limits our ability to see the total picture, our being bound to a particular place in time and not seeing all of it limits our ability to see that the sum total of all things in the universe points to this being the best possible world now and in the age to come. So the problem that we have is a problem of our vantage point. Now for Leibniz, this this doesn't mean that God individually wills human moral evils, right? That's, That's not to say that the best possible world is one in which God is individually willing a murderer to commit murder. These moral evils belong to a a second category of evil we find in Leibniz's writings. God's allowance for freedom of the will is part of his wise decision. It's, It's part of his wise decision to bring about the best possible world. But in that wisdom to give freedom of the will, God does not will individual human moral evils. Human souls, for Leibniz, they they have autonomy. And in fact, if we're to get even more philosophically complicated, and I can't unpack all of this now because I think we would all get lost. But if we were to even get more philosophically complicated, as Leibniz does, Leibniz, Leibniz believed the entirety of what's real in the universe was actually built on these the tiniest these tiniest building blocks of reality uh, the tiniest building blocks of what he considered real substances he called these tiniest building blocks monads and and in some sense these tiny basic building blocks of reality leibniz actually believed that they had in a way their own consciousness and there were maybe tiers of consciousness that these categories of monads participated in. So in a way, Leibniz is kind of almost like a panpsychist and he believes that all of reality is built, God's built these tiny building blocks and they actually even have this again this is going to be crazy we can't unpack all this now but i got i had to just share with you a little bit of this to help you understand his theodicy Uh, leibniz thinks these tiny building blocks these monads they in a sense have their own perceptions and even we could say desires and they range from really thoughtless mindless things like just what might exist in a rock to growing complexity in a plant, to an animal, to a human. And these monads, they are perpetually given their existence by God, and God is the means by which all these monads are held together. But that doesn't mean that in God's willing to hold them together, that he wills they act in particular ways, that he wills they act in particularly moral ways, Maybe I should put it this way. He might desire that human souls act morally. But for Leibniz, God is allowing freedom of the will and not directing human moral evils. The third category of evil for Leibniz is what we could call natural or physical evil. Again, the logical necessity of metaphysical evil makes for a universe where natural evils and moral evils are possible, but 
that natural evils are possible within this larger logical necessity of metaphysical evil. Natural evils include, and this is a category that we've used throughout, this is, again, he's not inventing some new category, he's drawing upon previous um, a previous tradition that calls things like destructive hurricanes and viruses like COVID-19 as natural evils. Leibniz also believed that many natural evils are experienced as a necessary corrective force for moral evils. So to put that another way, uh, Leibniz holds that there are things that happen that we perceive of as natural evils that God God actually uses within this system to act as either a corrective force or to deter people from moral evil. So, for example, and this would be my example, not his, um, the, the possibility of coming down with heart, di- heart disease might dissuade someone from becoming morbidly or obese. Or, you know, maybe as another example, the, the possibility of getting a uh, an STD might be the last line of motivational defense that keeps, keeps someone from committing moral evils of the sexual variety. In the end, Leibniz believes God works in all of these things to bring about the best possible world, even when this singular moment isn't the individually, isn't individually the best possible moment we can conceive of. So for Leibniz, there's a real clear, he tries to make this abundantly clear, but there are people that have really good questions and challenges to his perspective. He tries to make abundantly clear that what he's saying is right now, this given moment especially if some terrible evil is happening, the individual moment we can say is evil, it's broken, it's not good, but that individual moment being a, an instance of evil does not mean that the whole of creation itself is evil. And, or to take it another step further, we shouldn't deduce from even the most horrific instantaneous moments of evil that this creation, this world wasn't worth creating. So for Leibniz, he sees these individual atrocities, these evils as being still one, um, paling in comparison to the sum total of goodness, beauty, and truth that's happening in the universe at that moment, and two, that this instant moment of pain, suffering, evil, is still within a larger, wiser scope, purview of all reality in which God says, even with that evil and terrible suffering, it was worth it. It was worth it, and this is the best possible world. Now, not everyone was convinced by Leibniz's argument. Maybe you're not, as you're listening to this. 
Not everyone was wild with this sort of theodicy, especially during the Enlightenment period. Famously, the French Enlightenment author Voltaire wrote a fierce satirical takedown of this sort of best possible world theodicy that we find in Molinism and in Leibniz theology. After the 1755 earthquake that killed 60,000 people in Lisbon, most of which were people who were likely worshiping in church during All Saints Day, Voltaire wrote Candide, a satirical story about a young man named Candide and and a professor named Dr. Pangloss, who uh, he... (laughs) Uh, not so affectionately refers to as a professor of metaphysico-theologico-cosmo-nigology, <laughs> uh, who, who's, you know, really almost like a caricature, maybe, of a Leibniz, maybe not specifically Leibniz, there's some arguments about this, but a Leibniz-type theological philosopher... Dr. Pangloss frequently argues that there's no effect without a cause and that this is, quote, the best of all possible worlds. So very, I think, very directed um, satire towards the optimistic theodicy of people like Leibniz. Here's here's just one quote from uh, Candide coming from Dr. Pangloss, the, you know, the the straw man of uh, representing the kind of Leibniz school of metaphysical theology. Quote, It is demonstrable, said he, that things cannot be otherwise than as they are. For all being created for an end, all is necessarily for the best end. Observe that the nose has been formed to bear spectacles. Thus, we have spectacles. Legs are visibly designed for stockings, and we have stockings. Pigs were made to be eaten, therefore we eat pork all year round. Consequently, all is for the best, end quote. So, you know, one one example of this kind of playing out within the story in, in Candide, um, the the young man named Candide that the, the title is based on, uh, again, these are fictional characters, part of a satire. Candide gets kicked out of the, the castle where he's been living, where uh, the baron of the castle catches him making out with his daughter, right? So so after he gets kicked out of the castle, the story follows this this Candide through a series of problems, right? Including getting captured by Bulgarian soldiers, then making his way to Holland. And in Holland, he bumps back into Dr. Pangloss. And he doesn't realize right away that's Dr. Pangloss because Dr. Pangloss actually looks uh, like a, a beggar. He's dying of cis, uh, syphilis, which, of course, is an STD. And in that conversation, he bumps into Dr. Pangloss. P- Dr. Pangloss tells Candide, um, Candide, he says, Hey, this is how I got it. And um, also, hey, by the way, your lover, you know, that that gal you were making out with in your castle, uh, you know what? She was raped and murdered by the Bulgarian soldiers. Oh, yes. Remember those Bulgarian soldiers you got captured by? And Candide, obviously, like upset by all of this, he says, it's got to be all all of this terrible stuff. It's got to be from the devil. And... (laughs) 
And, and, and Dr. Pangloss replies with his sort of maybe kind of a, a, a best of all possible worlds theodicy. He says this, quote, It was a thing unavoidable, a necessary ingredient in the best of worlds. For if Columbus, referring to Christopher Columbus, had not in an island of America caught this disease which contaminates the source of life, frequently even hinders generation, and which is evidently opposed to the great end of nature, we wouldn't have chocolate. End quote. Well, so as you can kind of see, there are these issues that people have with the sort of best of all possible worlds, the Odyssey. Does it really even make anything better? Does it really deal with the pain and suffering people experience? Is it simply a tool to continue to justify the wrongs in the world? To paraphrase another quote from Voltaire, isn't there a certain level of madness in maintaining that everything is right when it's wrong? Now, defenders of the Leibniz-style theodicy, whether they are in the classical tradition of Augustine or Aquinas or in the Molinist camp that emerged just before Leibniz, would say that Voltaire-style arguments miss the point, and that no one's affirming that a momentary evil needs to be celebrated as good and right right now. But one can sympathize with Voltaire-style concerns about whether adopting this sort of outlook leads someone to a sort of cold stoicism where we just accept the evils of the world and not rebel against them. What do you think of Leibniz's theodicy and Voltaire's critique? Reach out to me on Twitter or become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community and send me a message. I'd love to hear your feedback this week. Well, that concludes this week's episode. And this episode couldn't be possible without the support of those in the Deep Talks Patreon community. People like BJ, Carolyn, Eli, Josie, Luke, Paul R, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Tim K, and all the the new patrons that have jumped in during this summer's drive to get to 300 patrons. You know, over the last two years, I've given away some 40 plus hours of collegiate level lectures and sat down with dozens of theologians, philosophers, scientists, artists, a bunch of different people across the theological spectrum to pick their brain, to foster nuanced, non-combative dialogue, to help us deal with some of the, the questions that we maybe most deeply wrestle with. And I can't do that without your support. So I want to invite you to become, if you've been a listener for this of this program for quite some time, to consider becoming a supporter, especially this summer as we make a push to get from among our thousands of listeners to just get 300 people to support this podcast, to continue to help me uh, continue to do this work, to fund the um, costs that it takes to put together this program to file host, to buy the books, the theological journals and scholarly articles, all of those things require money as well as the time investment that it takes to put into this. So I'd ask for your support, especially this summer as we make a drive to 300. Once we get to that point, I'll be able to sustain weekly episodes to keep them ad free and to be able to continue to provide a free theological, philosophical education and dialogues for people 
all over the world. As a special thank you, I also give away Q&A episodes. And for those people at the tough levels, tough uh, questions after class level or higher, we uh, also do special, I'm doing a special series of articles called Get to Know Your Neighbor's Religions, where we are going through and exploring the major religions of the world from the perspective of scholars within those traditions and just trying to have maybe thoughtful, less angry, the not sort of angry apologetics guy (laughs) exploration of these different religious traditions, helping us understand them so that we can love our neighbors better. So there's additional bonus things like that. You can check that out over at Deep Talks. If you even just wanted to give a one-time gift for this episode, just there's a link to do that as well via the cash app in the description of this podcast. So, well, until next time, guys, I'd, I'd, love to, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your feedback, what you've learned from today's episode, points of agreement, disagreement, reach out to me, share it all with me. I'd love hearing from all of you. And until next time, we'll talk again soon. <laughs>